Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. A voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And they were coming down the mountain. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Thanks, brother, for reading the text for us this morning. Sorry, uh, because I, I didn't tell Brian that uh, in the middle of the week I was reading uh, verses 9 to 13 and thought that we needed to be discussing them as well. So sorry that that wasn't included on the slides this morning. Uh, I say this nearly every time that I preach, uh, that it's, it's a joy to preach. Um, and it's not just a joy to preach because of preaching, uh, but it's a joy to preach because I get to do it with y'all. I get to proclaim the word to y'all, to friends and family and the Lord uh, that I've done life with, that we've walked through issues with, that we have cared for one another together. And that's what makes it a joy, is that we are together sitting under God's word. Well, as I've been um, preparing and thinking about preaching, uh, Brian and Drew and Michael have graciously given me uh, the next three weeks, Lord willing, uh, to preach uh, partially in fulfillment of some course, uh, course requirements that I'm taking at Southern. Uh, but also partly just for the joy to be able to preach the word to y'all. Uh, as I've been thinking and preparing to preach, one verse has stuck out to me that I constantly come back to uh, that I want to drive us over the next three weeks. So my encouragement would be that y'all write this verse down, uh, that y'all memorize this verse, and that you think about this, meditate on it. That verse is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, ironically, it's not a text that we're going to be talking about, or I'm not going to be preaching on over the next three weeks, but uh, that, this is the concept, this is the idea driving 
uh, these next three weeks. And Paul says this, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So think about that, meditate on that, allow that to shape your prayers for me, for our congregation as we move forward. And I love the words of that last song that we sang uh, that Trey Bo and Mary Rose led us in singing. Uh, show us Christ. Show us Christ. Reveal his glory through the preaching of the word. Where else will we go? Where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. So uh, before we jump into our text this morning, uh, I, I just want to pray for that. I want, us to, I want us to sit together and pray again. I know we just prayed a long prayer, but I want us to pray uh, that the Lord would prepare our hearts uh, because many of us, myself included, uh, have already had a lot of things going on this morning. Uh, we all come with a lot of uh, struggles this week. We all come with heart, hardened hearts, hearts that are naturally callous to the word and towards the Lord. So I just want to take a moment with each other and pray um, that the Lord would soften our hearts. So if you would, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, uh, I have about another minute before I need to start preaching. So uh, I want to give us all an opportunity to just be quiet before the Lord, pray by yourselves for 30 seconds, a minute, and then I'll pray, and then we'll um, jump into our text this morning. So if you would, just, just bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we, we all come with our own baggage this morning. We all come with our own sin, our own sufferings, our own struggles. And we want to just confess that to you, Father. We want to confess that we're weak people. I want to confess that I'm a weak man, Lord. Um, confess to you that we've come and sinned. We don't deserve to be here with you under your word. And we thank you, Father. Thank you for your kindness and your grace to allow us to do that. We thank you for the words that we sang this morning. We thank you, Father, um, for reminders that we need to be praying to prepare our hearts. No, Father, because we're inclined to draw away from you. So Father, as, as there are inevitably those among us who don't know you and whose hearts are not softened by the gospel, I pray that you would prepare them like a, like a tiller in the soil. Would you prepare their hearts to receive the word? Would you prepare even soft hearts to receive the word, Father? New hearts, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, that we, but that we would be doers, that we would behold the glory of the Lord and that we would be transformed into his image. So Father, would you uh, lead me uh, as I preach this morning by your spirit to be submissive to you, uh, to, to be sensitive to you, to 
stick to your word and not vain words. And would you ultimately, Lord, meet us this morning as we sit under your word. Where else will we go, Father? You have words of eternal life, so draw, to your, draw near to us uh, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, <clears throat> most of y'all, if any of y'all have been around kids for any amount of time, young kids, you know that uh, they love the question, why? It's like it's ingrained in them. You know, why, why are we eating Brussels sprouts for dinner? Why can't I go outside without shoes and socks and a jacket and it's only 40 degrees? Why not? Why this? Why that? It's like it's ingrained in them to know the why behind the what. And I think it's helpful for us this morning as we jump into our passage to know the why behind the what of preaching. Uh, why do we preach? Why do we proclaim the gospel? Why uh, do I stand up here? Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a doctor from the 20th century, uh, early, mid-1900s, uh, died in like 1980. Uh, he was a medical doctor, but he was also a very um, famous, influential preacher. And he said this about the why of preaching. The chief end of preaching is this, or the why is this, to give God's people, to give men and women a sense of God and his presence. Essentially, the goal of preaching is that, that the preacher would help the people know God. That they would help him, he would help them experience God, and this is my goal this morning. If we're going to endure as Christians, if we are going to pursue holiness in our life, if we're going to experience any semblance of revival in our city, in our country, in the world, we must first know God. We must first know his word. We must first know his presence. And his presence and knowing him changes us. And that is what I believe is the purpose and the meaning of Mark 9. You see, Mark 9 is a crucial passage in the Gospel of Mark and in uh, Matthew and Luke. It, it, it's in all three of the synoptic Gospels, the Gospels that all share a lot of the same stories and a lot of the same um, progression of the narrative. Mark 9 is right in the middle of the book of Mark. And it comes uh, after the first eight chapters really deal with Jesus' calling, his calling of his disciples, his teaching, and his miracles. Uh, it's a very brief summary that doesn't do it a justice. Um, Y'all should go read Mark 1 to 8 um, so you get a, a fuller sense of that. So the disciples that Jesus called have been eyewitnesses to his teaching and ministry uh, to this point. So they've experienced him uh, doing miracles, teaching, healing people, and his miracles made him stand out much so that that was the main reason why many people followed Jesus. They just wanted Jesus because he would give them bread. He, some just wanted Jesus because he would heal them. So uh, some, uh, his identity was questioned in the midst of his ministry. Jesus' identity was questioned. Who is this guy? Some thought he was just coming to start a political coup. Um, his, his people in his hometown rejected him. The Jews, the Pharisees, demanded that he show them more signs to validify. Is he really the Messiah? Much like today, there was skepticism about Jesus. And today, there's a lot of skepticism. People don't know who Jesus is. People think that they know Jesus because they've been taught about Jesus. Maybe, maybe to you, Jesus was 
uh, just a good teacher, a good example for our life. Maybe he was just a prophet. Maybe he was just some crazy man that said crazy things and people wanted to make a myth out of him. Uh, maybe he was more than a man, but, but not God. Uh, maybe, maybe you assume he's God, but it just doesn't really matter to you. There's a lot of skepticism about Jesus. So many didn't receive him, but the weak and the humble of society continued to seek Jesus out, kind of like the blind man in Mark chapter 8 and verses 22 to 26. There's this man who, who his friends bring him to Jesus. He's blind, and his friends bring him, and they beg Jesus, would you heal this man? So what's Jesus do? He spits in his eyes, and then he puts his hands on the man's eyes, and he takes his hands off, and he says, okay, do you see? And the man's like, I kind of see, but everything's super blurry. You're a tree. He's a tree. It didn't really work. So then Jesus, a second time, puts his hands directly on the man's eyes. No spit getting in the way. Jesus just touching the man. And he pulls his hands off and Mark says, he saw everything clearly. Well, I think this is the case of the disciples uh, that they... They thought that they saw clearly. They, they saw vaguely. They witnessed Jesus' miracles and teachings, but they only saw vaguely. After that instance in Mark chapter 8, Jesus then comes to the disciples and says, okay, so who do people say that I am? Because remember, his identity's question. Who do people say I am? And the disciples say, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. And others say that you're just a prophet. And Jesus turns to them and he goes, okay, who do you say I am? To which Peter rightly confesses, you are the Christ. Jesus had a picture. Peter knew that Jesus was the Christ. He had faith that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but he didn't understand clearly because immediately afterwards, Jesus said, the son of man's going to have to suffer, be tortured, and die at the hands of wicked men. And Peter rebuked Jesus. He knew Jesus was the Christ, but he didn't have a category to understand the suffering servant. He didn't have a category that the Christ was going to suffer and die. Peter expected, to be, expected the Christ to be a powerful leader, but was blurred when it came to the suffering servant. And my fear is that, like Peter, many are going to think that they know who Jesus is. Many will think that they know who Jesus is because they've heard about him. Kids, you have heard about Jesus in Sunday school. You have heard about Jesus in your homes, at your schools. But don't confuse hearing about Jesus for knowing Jesus. Knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus are two different things. In Matthew chapter 7, we get this warning. Jesus, Jesus warns people and says, many are going to come. And they're going to say, we've done really great things in your name, Jesus. We've done really great things. We've cast out demons. We've done miracles. We've proclaimed your name. And what is Jesus' response? Depart from me. I've, I've never known you. So that's the warning. That's the warning. Don't confuse knowing about Jesus for knowing the real Jesus. We need to take what we know about Jesus, what we think about Jesus, and line it up with the Bible. We need to take God's word 
and take our idea of Jesus and get our idea of Jesus here so that we can actually know the true Jesus, not just know about Jesus. So Mark 9 falls in this category and Jesus leads his disciples up on a very high mountain for the Father to reveal Jesus' glory to the disciples. Mark 9 comes right on the heels of Mark 8, surprise, but it's the only time in Mark where, where, where Mark actually ties two events together with a certain amount of days. Normally Mark's like, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened, and immediately this happened. Now he says, and after six days, this happened. After six days, from the Peter confessing Christ, Jesus foretelling his suffering and his death, warning about the difficulty of the life of a disciple, because earlier at the end of chapter 8, he says, if anyone's going to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. There's difficulty in the Christian life, and we can all agree with that, whether that's marriage and your marriage trying to honor the Lord when there's sin on both sides, right? We are both sinners in our marriage. That's a surprise to many, but you're a sinner in your marriage. Your spouse is a sinner in your marriage. Whether that's parents struggling daily to be patient when your children are not being patient, when your children are not being slow to speak, when your children are tainted with sin, being patient with them, trying to love them and lead them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Maybe that's, maybe that's a, being a member of our church and pursuing other members who are going into sin. That's not easy. It's a lot easier to overlook someone's sin to, than to run to them and help them. Maybe saying no to temptation that regularly comes to you when the world says, no, it's okay, it's fine, just it's, treat yourself, right? No, no, there's difficulty in the Christian life. Denying yourself, running after those who are sinning, not easy things. Well, the disciples experienced this suffering that was to come and they needed to see the glory of Jesus, the Son of God, in order to know him rightly and endure as disciples until the end. Just like, just like the disciples needed a glimpse of Jesus' glory to endure the life, we also need to gaze upon Jesus, the divine Son. We need to behold his glory if we're going to know him rightly and live by faith until the end. We need to behold his glory if we're going to be transformed into his glory. 2 Corinthians 3. And I want you this morning to see that Mark 9 reveals Jesus as the exalted son of God, radiating beauty, glory, and majesty of God so that we would know him and live transformed lives in light of him. So how do we do that? How do we see that in Mark chapter 9? I want to focus on four aspects of Mark chapter 9. And I'm going to repeat these later on as we get there, so I'm only going to say them one time right now. Uh, the first aspect is the son's glory revealed... All of them start that way. The son's glory revealed through his transfiguration. If you need help spelling that, it should be in the little title above our text. Second aspect is the son's glory revealed in the presence of the prophets. Third is the son's glory revealed out of the cloud. 
And fourth is the Son's glory revealed in his suffering and exaltation. So we start with the first aspect. The Son's glory revealed through his transfiguration. One of the things the disciples really had going for them was that they were, they were very well versed in their Old Testament. Right? Peter, James, John, especially Jews, right? First disciples that Jesus calls. They knew their Old Testament. They knew, they knew their scriptures. We, however, uh, live in a culture that is fairly biblically illiterate. People who are not well versed in the Bible, who don't know it as well as generations in the past. Um, unfortunately, the culture at large has worn off on the church at large. Uh, now, praise the Lord, Holy City Church. When I think of Holy City, I think about a church who loves the Word. I think about pastors who love to shepherd us to the Word and love to help us understand and know God's Word. But that shouldn't be satisfying enough for us. We should all want to know the Word like the back of our hand. We want to know it like Moses tells Israel in Deuteronomy that, that these words shall be on your heart. You should put them on your hands and on your foreheads and on your eyes and you should teach them all the time to your families. That, that should be our hope as a church. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, this, this story that Chris read for us this morning of the transfiguration is going to call to mind some other stories throughout the Bible. And this is what Mark's largely drawing on. And it should draw to our mind events that we read in the book of Exodus, particularly Exodus chapters 19 to 34. Right? So uh, what are those? I'm glad you asked. Um, shortly after God delivered Israel out of Egypt... Right? He brought them out of slavery from Egypt. And he brought them to the bottom of a big mountain, Mount Sinai. And this was the mountain that the Lord had previously met Moses at when he came to him in a burning bush, right? So this is that mountain. He brings all of Israel, the whole congregation, to the foot of this mountain. And in Exodus 19.9, the Lord says, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. He comes in a thick cloud. And then later in verses 16 to 18, we read of the experience of this cloud coming down on the mountain. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. It wasn't just Israel trembling. The entire mountain was trembling at the presence of God in this cloud. The presence of God descended on a mountain, and it appeared like smoke covering the entire mountain, much like the days if you're out in the morning uh, driving downtown or driving to Mount Pleasant, you'll, recently there have been fogs so dense it entirely covers the Ravenel Bridge. But it's a little bit different, right? Significantly different. Uh, the, the fog covering the Ravenel Bridge was, is a little eerie. You're a little creeped out. You're like, okay, I'm just going to trust that the bridge hasn't disappeared, but it's, I'm sure it's still there. Not so with the glory cloud, in Exodus 19, no, no, no. It was terrifying. 
The cloud and thunder and lightning were frightening. It provoked a sense of amazement, wonder, and awe, fear, and trembling with Israel. Well, then, you know, another event in Exodus that, that tells us of God's presence on that mountain is in Exodus chapter 24. We read that Moses takes his three disciples, Joshua, Nadab, and Abihu, up on the mountain with 70 elders. And they approach the mountain, and what it says in Exodus 24.10 is that they saw God. But how did they see God? Well, they saw the cloud, and then Moses says, and we saw under his feet. So they, they caught a glimpse of his feet, but it wasn't even his feet that they saw. What he says is they saw like a pavement of sapphire under his feet with heavenly clearness. Now, I'm going to ruin this for you. There was nothing special about the ground. It wasn't like glassy pavement on the ground. It wasn't like some special dirt. It was probably just normal dirt. What was special, though, is God's presence. God's presence above the ground. The reflection of God's glory made the ground look glassy and brilliant bright and radiant. So in Exodus so far, we see that that God's presence is displayed as a cloud and his glory radiates brilliantly and brightly to all that's around him. And this is the situation in Moses' life, right? In Exodus um, 33 and 34, Moses goes up the mountain and he prays to the Lord. He says, Lord, if I'm going to lead these people, I need you to show me who you are. I need you to tell me who you are if I'm going to lead these people. And the Lord agrees. And the Lord says, Moses, I'm going to pass by and you're going to see my glory. But what I'm going to do, so I don't kill you, is I'm going to put you in the crack of this rock and you're going to hide and you're barely going to see me. So the story goes that uh, Moses was hid in the crack of a rock and the Lord passed by him. And what does it say? All Moses saw was his back. Moses didn't catch a full glimpse of God. He caught a very tiny glimpse of God and his glory. In the cloud, Moses caught a glimpse of God's glory. And when he came down, it says his face shone because he had been talking with God. So much so that he had to put a veil to cover his face when he was talking to Israel so they wouldn't be terrified looking at him. God's glory shined on Moses and changed him. It changed his appearance. Well, the story of Jesus' transfiguration reflects a lot of what we read in the transfiguration or in the in the narratives through Exodus. Just as as Jesus, after six days, took his disciples up the mountain, that also after six days, Moses went to the mountain. Moses was on the mountain. Moses brought his three disciples up to the mountain. Nadab, Abihu, and Joshua. Jesus took his three disciples, Peter, James, John, on the mountain. The cloud of God's presence covers both mountains. God speaks out of the cloud on both mountains. And God shines brightly and radiantly on both mountains. Mountains uh, throughout the Gospels and throughout the Scriptures are a significant place. Mountaintops are often where the Lord meets 
uh, with his people. They're often where the Lord encounters his people, reveals himself to the disciples in, in, in the gospel accounts. And here, as well as in uh, the Old Testament, they're often where people get a glimpse of God's glory. So it says in verse 2, he was transfigured before them. Now Mark doesn't do us uh, any additional helps because he's so brief in his descriptions of everything. All he says is, and Jesus was transfigured. And uh, his clothes are bright. Right? But So this word transfigured, right? It's not a word that we normally use. Nothing that we would expect to understand on our own. It sounds kind of like maybe like evolutionary theory or something we might expect of a caterpillar. Uh, so what does it mean? Well, the word transfigured comes from a Greek word metamorpho. And here it literally means uh, to change in appearance. To change in appearance. Other places in, in uh, the New Testament, it carries this idea of to transform someone's inner being. Like the disciples um, in Second uh, Corinthians 3.18 that we talked about. Paul uses that same word to talk about being transformed into Jesus' image. So this idea of transformation doesn't necessarily carry this connotation of something uh, uh, that is a change in substance. Does that make sense? It's not a change in substance. It's a change in appearance. So we don't need to be leery of it. We need to see that Jesus changed visibly before his disciples in this low-key miracle that's tucked away in the, in the middle of the gospel of Mark. Luke says that his face was white. His face was altered. Mark, Matthew says in 17 verse 2, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Just like maybe if you're asleep and your spouse comes in and flips the light on real quick and it's so blindingly bright... Jesus came and shined magnificently white so much that his beauty and brightness reflected the splendor and majesty of heaven. Moses changed by God shining on him. Jesus changed before them, not as adding something to himself. That's why Mark says his clothes shined so that like no one on earth could bleach them that bright. Like, Jesus' clothes were so bright because they were being shined on by him that it would put Tide Pods to shame. Some have said that it's not like Jesus puts on a mask to, to reveal his glory, but it's like he lifts off a veil. It's like a veil being lifted off his person to expose his glory. He's the eternal second person of the triune God who for all times has existed with perfect glory. Not a moment has he existed without glory. And in the incarnation, when Jesus became man, it's like his glory was veiled. The flesh of humanity covered the glory of the Son. The glory of the divine nature of Jesus was covered when he became a man. And in the transfiguration, it's like this veil or this covering of humanity is lifted off, revealing to the disciples who he truly is as the glorious God. Like the author of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature 
John in his gospel says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory. Later on he says that no one has ever seen God except the son who's at the father's right hand. John 1.18. And, and he has made the father known. The Son came to radiate His glory to make the Father known. And here, God, the Father, is revealing Jesus for who He truly is to the disciples as the God of all the earth. I was talking with a client of mine the other day who's a Jew and born Jewish. Uh, He is a smart man. Uh, He... Yeah, he's a smart man. Uh, he's studied Jewish tradition. He's studied uh, extra-canonical Jewish literature to understand what he believes and whatnot like that. He's spent a lot of money to preserve a really nice scroll of the Torah. He's been to rabbinical school, studies with a rabbi twice a week, has even claimed that he teaches the rabbi. And the other day, he looks at me and he goes, you know, like you and me, like you're a Christian I'm a Jew. We pretty much believe the same thing, right? Except you believe that Jesus is the Messiah and I don't. You know, I think he's, I think he's you know, a good man. He was just another prophet of this day and he was like, you know, the best of all the prophets. But, uh, you know, he never actually claimed to be God. He wasn't God. Uh, just a prophet. To which my mouth almost hit the floor at how preposterous that is. Right? Jesus is not just a prophet. Jesus is not just a man. They didn't, they didn't kill him because he was just another prophet or just another man. They killed him because he claimed to be the divine Lord, the Son of God who came to save people from their sins. And we need to see that. We need to behold his glory and see that he's not just another man. I've never seen another man's face radiate so brightly that I'm blinded. He's not just a prophet. He's the one in Revelation 19 who's going to come wearing white on a white, horde with, on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth to strike down the nations, to rule them with a rod of iron like Michael read this morning in, in Psalm 2. One painter told me last week, he asked me, well, is, this guy, is this guy going to heaven or is he going to hell? And I was like, well, he doesn't believe in Jesus. He doesn't claim Jesus. So yeah, he's going to hell because he doesn't know Jesus. And he looked at me and said, well, Bo, like that's not for you to judge. Only God can judge him. To which I replied, yeah, yeah, the Lord's going to be the judge. The Lord's the judge on the last day. He's the one that can see the hearts and the intentions of man. And if that's not terrifying, if it's not terrifying that this God who's glowing in radiant glory, beautiful holiness, terrifyingly justice, if that's not terrifying, I don't know what it is. I I told him, I said, you need to be far more concerned about the judge who's going to judge you than me. I'm imperfect, he's not. Or I'm imperfect, he is. So, so what's that mean? So if you don't see Jesus for who he is, 
If you don't see Jesus as I've described him, you need to know him rightly. You need to know him rightly as the divine son who came to save sinners, who's the very image of the invisible God, who's come to make God known, and you need to respond by believing in him. Put your trust in him, hope in him, think on him. Believe in him and his words and follow after him. Now, that's not just a call for unbelievers, right? Because we need the same warnings that we would not fall away. So believer, when you think about Christ daily, we should be thinking about him daily. And unfortunately, because of the hardness of our hearts, we too often drift away from him. And what a shame it is that we would go through an entire work day and not think about Jesus. Fight against the sins that you entertain in darkness. Right? It's an encouragement to us as Christians that we should live in the light of the Lord who radiates brilliantly. So fight against the sins and the darkness. Right? When you're tempted to indulge, to go into excess at night, when you're alone, when it's late, fight against the darkness. See Jesus as the Lord of light. Fight against the feelings of anxiety and despair that may creep in. Fight those by going to the Lord who ever lives to intercede for you. The Lord who ever lives to take your prayers to the Father. The Lord who ever lives to intercede. He's your high priest. Fight your sins by going to him. Fight your sins by looking to him. Fight your sins by engaging with the people of God. The people who have beheld his glory and been transformed by it. Run to those people who know Jesus. It's their responsibility and joy to walk with you in your sin, in your struggles. Knowing glorious Jesus should live us to live in light of his glory, but his glory wasn't just revealed in the fact that he shone brilliantly, but we have a second aspect, which is that his glory, the son's glory, is revealed in the presence of the prophets. The son's glory is revealed in the presence of the prophets. And for that, we're going to look at verses, um, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 4 five and six. So Mark continues this miraculous mountaintop experience by noting the appearance of Moses and Elijah. They're seen talking with Jesus. We've already discussed Moses at length. We've talked, he's a great prophet. He's experienced the Lord, his glory on Sinai. And Elijah also experienced the Lord on a mountain, Mount Sinai in 1 Kings 19. So after Elijah, uh, you know, observed the Lord victorious over the prophets of Baal, he then ran away from Ahab, his opponent and enemy, and he found refuge at this mountain, Mount Sinai. And where did he go? He went into a cave at Mount Sinai, and the Lord came to him and said, Elijah, I'm coming. Stand before me. 
stand before me on the mountain. And then all of the sudden we read that a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks. And after a wind on, and after the wind, an earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire. The Lord had passed before Elijah, but Elijah was terrified. He was still in the cave. And it wasn't until after all of that commotion happened that Elijah covered his face and started walking out the mountain. The Lord was giving a glimpse of his glory to Elijah and he missed it. Moses and Elijah had similar experiences of the Lord and his glory and hearing his voice of confirmation of comfort from the cloud. But why exactly Moses and Elijah? Right there's, If you read into it, there's a lot of people giving, giving different opinions, giving different possibilities, and some of them have validity, some of them are not as valid. Uh, but one thing stands crucial that you can't miss. Jesus stands out as supreme over the prophets. Jesus is supreme over Moses and Elijah. And I think that what Mark wants us to understand is that Jesus stands not just as supreme, but as a climactic, in a climactic place of fulfillment over these two prophets, over the law and the prophets. One writer said that the fulfillment of the history of Israel and of every hope for the glorious end time have already begun with the coming of Jesus. He is the prophet like Moses of Deuteronomy 18. And he was born under the law in order to fulfill the law. Romans 3 says that the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Acts 10.43 says to him all the prophets bear witness. After his resurrection on on the Emmaus Road, Jesus opened up the scriptures with some disciples, random disciples there. And it says in Luke 24, 27, "Beginning beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What's supreme here about the presence of the prophets is that Jesus, Jesus is supreme over them. For they all point to him, and they all are fulfilled in him. They don't rival him, but they revel in him. They're talking with him. What they saw in part and in minor glimpses, hidden by a rock, or like terrified in a cave, what they saw minorly, they see on this mountain in full. They see... In full, the glory of God dwelling on the sun. And the disciples are getting a little bit of glimpse of this glory. They're getting a glimpse of the realm of God breaking into the reality of man. In this glimpse, they are seeing things as they truly are. Not as a veil, not as a mask, but as a veil lifted. And I hope you see the significance here about the presence of the prophets. The Bible is not just like an archaic book of really hard things to understand, especially the Old Testament. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's not just a list of cursing. It's not just a a list of prophets saying the same thing over and over and over again. It's not. What the Bible is concerned with is revealing God. Revealing the God who reconciles humanity to himself. 
the whole Old Testament stands pointing to and fulfilled in Jesus. We need to know our Bibles if we're going to know him. We need to see how these things point to Jesus. The word of God, the word of God is how he reveals the Son to us. Oh, that we would be like uh, John Bunyan, right? Who was, when he was pricked, he bled bibbling. He bled the Bible. And how do we do this? Really simple. Read the Bible. Intake the Bible. Soak it in like a sponge, like a dry sponge in water. Sucks up the water. You go to the word thirsty and just suck it up. Let it fill you. Read it daily. Listen to it in the car, on your drives, on your commutes. Read it in your family worship. Take your kids through the Bible, right? There are plenty of great resources. All of them pale compared to the Bible. When you're rocking the baby and all you want to do is a brain dump and just like go to Facebook, like open up your Bible, right? You need it. Those moments where you feel exhausted, where you feel, where you feel like life just continues coming after you and you can't catch up, like run to the scriptures. Run to see Jesus in his word. Redeem the little moments of your day to soak up as much Bible as you can. We, if it's not a pattern in your life, start with it small. We gotta start disciplines small so that then they work into, into bigger disciplines. We need to develop deep habits of not just Bible reading, but Bible intake. I think that's a helpful category. We need to intake the Bible. That intake comes from a lot of different things. One of the most important things is reading the Bible, but it comes from a lot of other things. Listening, talking about the Bible, hearing about the Bible, meditating on the Bible. Just think about the Bible. We need to develop deep habits if we're going to grow in our knowledge of God. And growing in this knowledge will inform our experience of him. And growing in our experience and knowledge of him will help us to imitate him in his glory. Right? When we see Jesus rightly, we'll imitate him. And after, after Peter experienced everything, all of this commotion, these prophets showing up, he didn't really have the exact words to say. He said, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Should, should we build tents? One for you, Elijah and Moses? Like, y'all want to just stay here a little bit longer? It's been an understatement what, what Peter is saying here. One, he calls him rabbi. Now, like, after you experience the glory of God, like, you think Peter would say something other than rabbi, teacher, teacher. It's a bit of an understatement. But remember, Peter, Peter doesn't, doesn't see clearly, even on the mountain. This will be important for next week. Peter doesn't even see clearly on the mountain who Jesus was. Because remember, he rebuked Jesus. He rebuked Jesus for saying he was going to suffer. He caught a glimpse of glory like Moses, like Elijah, Yet he didn't see clearly, and instead of falling on his face like Moses, Peter opened his mouth, and he put both feet in it. 
he thought of the divine Lord as like a successor, like another step beyond Elijah and Moses, thinking that if they just stay here longer, maybe God's glory will last longer. He wanted to prolong the experience of God's glory by building tents for them to stay in. Uh, but what Peter neglected is that God's glory can't be confined to a mere tent or a mere temple. It's not something that can just be manufactured or drummed up, right? And, and in light of the events in Kentucky, that, that might be, that might seem like the appropriate application. Don't manufacture movements of God wholeheartedly, yeah. Don't manipulate people. We need to avoid that. But what I sense in my experience uh, of evangelicalism at large, at large, is that we need an opposite encouragement. We, we need an encouragement to respond like Moses, falling on our face before the Lord. We need an encouragement like, to be like Peter, even though he didn't understand clearly and fully Peter wanted to prolong the experience he had of God's glory, of knowing and seeing the Son. And though it was terrifying, he didn't want to go. Verse 6, it was, he said it was terrifying. They were terrified. Well, the Bible compels us to seek after God. Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. James 4, 8 tells us to draw near to God. Jesus in Matthew 6, 33 says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Paul tells us in Colossians 3 that if you've been raised to Christ, you need to seek the things that are above, the things that are with Christ, where Christ is. Beloved, we need an encouragement, all the encouragement we can, to see that Jesus is the Lord. We need all the encouragement we can to draw near to God with our entire hearts, because the natural inclination of our heart is to be bored or tired or busy or any other thing that's going to just draw us away. Any other thing that's going to be too much to get involved in the word, too much to get involved with community. I've got this thing, I've got this thing coming up and like, it's just too much. We, we need the reminder and the warning that we need to be intentionally pursuing the Lord we need to prioritize seeking the Lord through his word. We need to prioritize seeking the Lord through prayer at all times. We need to be intentional to pursue unity in our fellowship here, reconciling with brothers and sisters. We need to be flexible and pliable to the Holy Spirit who dwells in us to reconcile with the person you've offended Ask your child to forgive you for when you've sinned against them this morning. We need to be flexible. We need to be pliable to the Spirit to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's the Spirit at work within us to will and to work for His good pleasure. So if the Spirit's in you, Submit yourself to him. Be pliable. Be meek. Aspect number three of the Son's glory revealed is it's revealed out of the cloud. We can often laugh, and I did, and point fun at Peter who put his foot in his mouth. I think about, I think about Peter as many times as I put my foot in my mouth. But it's understandable. 
Peter was terrified. Right? They didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. Not just Peter, all the apostles. So Peter's got a bad rap just because he's the one that spoke. All of them, they were all terrified. They, none of them had words to say. And this is the common experience of experiencing God's glory on the mountain. Elijah, Moses, Israel, all of them were terrified. Understandably so. God's, God's presence covered the entirety of the mountain. Now picture you're on that Ravenel Bridge, that really foggy morning. We're, we're always warned, don't turn on your brights in the fog. Why do, why do they warn us that? Because if you turn on your brights, the light's going to reflect off all the water molecules in the cloud, and it's going to blind you and blind everybody around you. Right? So if we're warned not to turn on our car lights during a foggy day because it'll blur our vision, can you imagine being enveloped in a cloud and then the brightness and radiance and brilliance of the shining sun of God radiating in the midst of that cloud? Frightening, terrifying. But it's, just not, it's not just the existence of this cloud that reveals the sun's glory, but it's the one who speaks out of the cloud. The father speaks out of the cloud and he speaks as he spoke to Elijah and Moses out of the cloud. The, son, the, the father speaks to the three disciples out of the cloud. And Mark writes, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now this sounds familiar, right? We've seen this in the gospel of Mark already. In, in chapter one, verse one, at the baptism of Jesus, a voice came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now in Mark 1, God is speaking directly to Jesus, affirming to him his love and affection, his sonship. And in Mark 9, God is speaking to reveal that Jesus is the son to the disciples. He's speaking, revealing Jesus as the Son, the one whom has all the delight and the favor of the Father. The, the disciples didn't come to this realization on their own. It's not like that. It's not like a meme where, like, you know, the guy's at the board and he's got all these pins and strings drawing all these connections. That's not what the disciples did. They had to have it revealed to them. You and me all need to have this truth revealed to us. No amount of reason. No about amount of teaching, no amount of your parents loving God, no about amount of time that you're in church is going to reveal this truth to you. You need the Father to reveal it to you. We need the Son revealed. We can only know Him rightly in response to God's revealed Word. So that's the first thing that He reveals about the Son here. The second thing He reveals about the Son here is that the son is distinguished from these two other prophets, right? So the role of prophets was always, thus saith the Lord. They were messengers of God. If they said anything other than thus saith the Lord, it was very clear they should be put to death because they're false prophets. They're saying false things. But God is telling his disciples here, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is concerned. He's concerned that the people would listen to him. 
that the people would understand. The people would know rightly. And, in, and later on in verse 12 of our text today, uh, he refers back to the Old Testament because he says, and he said to them, Elijah does, de- uh, Elijah does come first, restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man? Is it written? He refers back to the Old Testament, right? He's just saying it's written back there. Look at verse 13. First few words, but I tell you. There's this idea here. Look at the Old Testament. I tell you. Authoritative. I tell you. Elijah's come. Now, um, we'll, we'll, we'll jump into that later on in our next point. But what we need to see here is that in verse 13, Jesus does what no prophet would dare do. He says, I say. I say. Here, the Father confirms the divine authority of the Son. Tells the disciples, you must listen to him. He is the greater prophet like Moses of Deuteronomy 18. And he comes to speak the perfect word of God because he is God in full perfection and full glory. Just like God spoke from the cloud to Moses in Exodus 19 so that Israel would obey God's commands. God speaks out of the cloud to the disciples in Mark 9, verse 7, so that they would know Jesus and obey him. We need God's revealed word if we're going to know him and endure in the Christian life. How do we, how do, we do that? How do we persevere? Once again, listen to him. Take these words seriously. We must listen to God's word for endurance. We shouldn't be trivial when it comes to scripture. We shouldn't just prize debating for debating's sake. Uh, We should heed God's word with sobriety. Know God's word with sobriety. So how are you doing listening to him, brother? Sister, what's it look like for you to listen to the word? Because we have a great temptation to come to the word to know what the word says, know something about the word, but not be shaped by the word. We need to behold the glory of the Lord and his word and be transformed by it. Please don't just read the word, as as James would say. Don't just be hearers, but be doers. Take his word seriously and obey him. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. So when we come to Jesus, his commands are really simple. His commands are really simple. Ready? Love God with all your heart. Right? Love the Lord and, and love your brother and sister. Love your neighbor. When we do this, when we look to Jesus and pursue love, we will be transformed by God who makes himself known to us through the Son. Know Jesus and be transformed by love. This brings us to our our fourth and final aspect we see here of the Son's glory revealed. It's revealed in his suffering and exaltation. So Jesus and his disciples, right? So in verse 8, we read that like the disciples opened their eyes and and it was just Jesus standing there. And then in in the next verse, in verse 9, we see that Jesus takes all of his disciples down the hill. Takes all his disciples down the hill and he pulls them aside and he's like, guys, don't tell anybody this right now. Don't tell anybody. But it's not like he was swearing them to secrecy. It's not like he was trying to manipulate them or coerce them into silence. No, he gave them a period. Don't tell anybody. 
Don't tell anybody until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And, and he, didn't wanna, he wanted to avoid any kind of uprising, any kind of thought of a political coup. He didn't want anybody's false image of Jesus to be affirmed by someone spreading the, this news, like he's trying to start a riot in, in John six fifteen. Jesus wanted nothing to stand in his path of redemption. He wanted nothing to stand in his path of saving his people, his suffering and dying. And, and the disciples didn't really understand even yet because they were, they were like, what, is that? what does that even mean? What's it mean that the Son of Man's got to rise from the dead? And, and hold on, Eli- what, what was with Elijah? Some people said you were Elijah, but what's with that? If you're not Elijah, who is Elijah? Is Elijah still coming? What? I still didn't understand. What's, what's the prophecy of Malachi 4-5 mean? When he says, I'll send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Well, Matthew and, and, and Matthew 17 uh, fills in the details and he says that John the Baptist was Elijah. He came in the ministry and the fulfillment of what Elijah was pointing to. And what happened to John the Baptist? Mark 6, he was beheaded. He was proclaiming repentance and faith in Jesus and he was beheaded. Jesus, Jesus says, yeah, Elijah did come and see what they did to him. See what they did to him. So if they rejected the messenger, he prepared the way, how much more? How much more are they going to reject Jesus? How much more is he going to face suffering and contempt on his path of salvation? Once again, Jesus tells them that his, his, his salvation, his redemption, is going to come through suffering, mistreatment, and death. Beloved, the glory of Jesus, the glory of Jesus is revealed in his suffering and his death in his exaltation, his glory is revealed in that the only sinless person of all humanity became sin so that unrighteous people could be made righteous. His glory is revealed that while he was the author of the law, the one who, the one who authored the law, he became under the law. Galatians. His glory is revealed that the one who mediates God's blessing and curses became a curse to redeem us from the curse. His glory was revealed in his death for while we were still sinners, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. His glory is revealed in the fact that he unites us to the father in his death. And his glory is revealed in the fact that he rose from the dead. It would not be glorious if he just died and stayed there. It's a glorious that he got up from the grave. He provides new life in him, resurrected life for all who believe. All, your, all who are united to him by faith, his resurrection provides peace and confidence and hope for an enduring life. Because, because you... For those who have faith in Jesus, because you have faith in him, you're united to Jesus. And because you are united to Jesus, God's beloved son, 
you are a son or a daughter of God. That's comforting. He's not going to let his children go. So as we see Jesus revealed in the transfiguration, what, what should we do moving forward? What's our task? Well, first, look to Jesus, right? Hebrews 12. Behold his glory revealed in the word. And second, run with endurance. The race, is set, the race that's set before us. When this is the case, when we look to Jesus and when we run the race, we will be like what Paul describes in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Brothers and sisters, behold Jesus' glory revealed and pursue, run after being transformed into his likeness. Would you pray with me?